Well, good morning, everyone. So to begin our time together today, um, we're going to read from John 1. So if you'd like to turn there with me, you can. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, and to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. Hi. Hi. <laughs> well, hello again. To, I was saying hi to the baby, but you guys said hi. So hi. Good morning. Um, if you would turn with me to Mark chapter 5. Thank you, Ellie, for reading from uh, John chapter 1 this morning. That text, I believe, actually sets up kind of our thought process and our hearts and minds as we go into Mark 5, although not directly correlated, I believe the idea that John's getting at there will come into play as we look at our text this morning. So just because this happens often after Easter, do you guys realize, like, Jesus is still risen from the dead? Like, we talk about this, and we get all excited on Easter, and it's almost like he's back in the tomb again the following Sunday. It's like we expelled all of our energy. We can't be excited about it. He is risen! Okay, now we're going to do it one more time, because I think you guys can out-yell me. He is risen! He is risen oh, see? I knew it! Faith well-placed. You guys, we ought to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus every single Sunday. So don't be surprised going forward if every now and then we start our time with he is risen because we live in that resurrection life and that's i mean you guys heard i talked about it all week last sunday about how this changes who we are it changes every aspect of our lives and if it truly does then we ought to celebrate the resurrection every single day and we ought to shout that back and forth to each other as often as we get opportunity jesus is alive it's exciting you guys with um palm sunday and easter the last couple of Sundays, we haven't been in the Gospel of Mark for some time, and I haven't taught from the Gospel of Mark because Todd got up and preached like crazy three weeks ago, and then BJ preached before that, so I haven't been in the Gospel of Mark for like a month and a half. So I'm a little rusty. I'm just kidding. But like, I, I'm really excited to be able to share again from the Gospel of Mark and to pick up where we left off here in Mark chapter 5, right at the beginning, and we're going to pick up where Todd left us at the end of chapter 4, and, and if you remember this, when you look back at chapter 4, because hopefully you have your Bibles open, and if you, are, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, I encourage you, there's Bibles in the pews, grab one right out of the pew in front of you. But as you are looking at this text, you'll see that chapter 4 of Mark is, you know, about three quarters parable. 
It's either Jesus speaking in parables or him talking about why he's using parables. And it's, a, it's an awesome chapter of scripture. But at the end, Todd walked us through that passage where Jesus and his disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee. The storm kicks up like crazy. They're freaking out and Jesus is asleep. And they go and they wake him up and Jesus calms the raging storm with his word. It's a powerful, powerful story. And you see it recorded in the other Gospels, in Matthew and in Luke. And what's fascinating about reading these accounts is you get the the writer's personality kind of coming through the Scriptures as well. It's God's holy word. It's inspired by God, but you definitely see the personalities of the writers coming through. For more examples on that, read the Gospel of John. Because John all the time is, is inserting his little comments saying like, yeah, we really didn't understand this. And oh, by the way, this happened later. And you kind of see the personalities coming through as the Spirit inspires them to write. But what's interesting to me about Mark chapter 4, the very last verse, and we need to notice this because it's going to carry us into our text for this morning, reads this way. In Mark 4.41, it says, and they, and it's speaking of the disciples, were terrified. Now just stop there for a second. What had Jesus just done? You can say it out loud. He calmed the storm, right? He calms the storm. Someone's like, play is Parcheesi. Wrong. No, he he calmed the storm. Does anyone know what Parcheesi is anymore? (laughs) That's an old name, isn't it? Sorry, that totally like not in the notes. You guys, they're terrified because Jesus calmed the storm. Look at this. They asked one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Now, this causes me to pause as I'm preparing for my study this last week, and I'm just kind of staring at that text like, why were they terrified that Jesus delivered them? It wasn't the deliverance that terrified them. It was the power of Jesus. It was the ability of Christ Now, that word terrified, it's fascinating because in my Bible, in the CSB version that that I read from, it, it says in a little note underneath, or they were filled with awe. And the idea is there. The reason that note is there, the translators get it from Matthew and Luke's account. Because if you look at Matthew's account of this story, he uses the word that we translate amazed. It's thalmadzo. If you look at it, it means to wonder. He uses that term in reference to what's going on on the part of the disciples when Jesus calms the wind and the waves. So they're amazed at what he's doing. That's where you get that sense of like they were filled with awe. Well, then you look at Mark's account and it says that they were terrified. He uses the Greek word fabio, which, not fabio, (laughs) fabio. (laughs) Ha, you remember him, don't you? So here's the thing. He uses this term, which means terrified. But if you look at the screen, Luke uses both of them. He does what I would call the smart thing, and he encompasses the whole idea, and he says this. He says that they were both amazed and fearful in Luke, but it's the same fabeo. He uses the same Greek word that Mark uses in his gospel account that's translated terrified. It's the same idea. So Luke says they're amazed and they were terrified. Now, if you know me even just a little bit, you know that something like this will stop me in my tracks and I'll stare at it for a while. Because, you guys, the reason I'm making such a fuss about this is because Jesus reveals to us the complete character of God. He is 
the complete picture of God in human form. And to experience God like his disciples experienced him in that moment is to understand what it means to be both amazed and reverently fearful. To see the power of God and to respect his holiness and at the same time be in awe of him and love him and want to be closer to him. It's not either or, it's both and. And I think it's important for us because Hebrews 12, 28 through 29 summarizes this point really clearly. And the writer says, therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe. And then he says in verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, if you recognize the picture there of the holiness of God, and the draw to him, then you're getting the point. Because we serve God acceptably both through reverence and awe. It's not either or. And there ought to be both a recognition of Christ's holiness, which inspires reverential fear, and an undeniable draw to be closer to him because of his love and his mercy. And this is what we seek to do, you guys. This is the beauty of reading scripture and reading what God's word says and looking at it in context. We don't separate the two. We see them both together in Christ. We don't skip around to the parts about Jesus that we, that we love and we appreciate and avoid the parts that we don't really understand. And this morning's text is the perfect example of a, a section of scripture at one point that I really don't have an answer for. But the point of the story remains the same and is understandable. You realize that there's going to be times where you're reading the scriptures and you're going to be like, wait, what? And you may not say it like I just did, but you might look at it and it, it causes you to wonder a bit. That's okay. It might leave you in awe. It might leave you in a little bit of fear like, God is so powerful. This is crazy. And be like, yeah, there should be some reference there. To understand all of who God is, we don't separate those things from each other. We appreciate them as this is our God. This is our holy, righteous, loving, and merciful God. He's all those things in one. If you have one without the other, we have an unbalanced view of who he is. And, and when you have an unbalanced view of who God is, and we know this well, and I just want to identify it, we can tend to lean towards his grace and give license for sin. We can look at God and go, oh, he understands, he's compassionate, but we don't fear him in a reverential way, which means that we don't fear the holiness of God, which means we devalue it and we take advantage of him. Or there's the other side. Those who are so aware of his holiness and his power and the consume, I mean, that, they love that verse, don't they? The people who are on the other side of the coin, they love that verse in Hebrews 12, 29. They're like, our God's a consuming fire. You're like, true, but I don't think he wants to kill me right now. However, there needs to be a fear of that, but there's also grace. There's also grace and mercy and love and compassion in our God. It's not either or, it's both and. And the reason I want us to see this morning, this idea is because the word that Mark uses in chapter 4, verse 41, fabio, he uses and is translated as terrified, is going to be used again in chapter 5. And the usage is fascinating to me because the context of, the, of being terrified in the boat on the Sea of Galilee is referring to his disciples. And they're going to continue on with Jesus. This word's going to be used again in chapter 5, and it's going to describe a problem. 
when we fear what God is doing and we want no part of him. We can fear God in a healthy way and want more of him. Or we can fear God in an unhealthy way and want no part of him. This is a dangerous paradigm. And so I want to point this out at the beginning because we're going to get into this in a little bit. And I want us just to have some walk around knowledge of it. Notice how chapter 5 begins though. I'm going to read this in sections and I'd like you to read along with me. But I'm going to read this in sections and right here at the beginning we'll read the first 13 verses of Mark 5. Notice how verse 1 continues from the end of chapter 4. Mark 5, 1 reads this way. They came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes. They thought they were going to die. But here they are on the other side, safe and sound, or so they thought. As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs, and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him. And he cried out with a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. For he had told him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. What is your name? He asked him. My name is Legion, he answered him, because we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. A large herd of pigs was there, feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him, send us to the pigs so that we may enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. The herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. This is the word of God. Notice in verse 1, as we look at this section, please don't miss the importance of that verse, that they experience the fear of elements, they experience the fear of death, and fear of the Son of Man, even being terrified at his power, and yet they stay with him, and Jesus brings them to the other side. Jesus gets them to their destination. If that isn't an illustration or a strong and powerful reminder for you and I, that it's not about what kind of a boat you're in. And it's not even about the severity of the storm. It's about who's in the boat with you. Who is with you in that storm? That's what matters the most. So they see the power of God. They see the power of God in Jesus. It brings that, that fabio response, that terrified response, and yet these men love Jesus. And they're there with him and they recognize that he loves them. The region of the Gerasenes referenced here in this uh, first verse is, is interesting and, and definitely not without debate. Um, it's actually pronounced Gadarenes um, in another text and, and is used in another way in another text. And the whole point of that is saying that there's been a lot of argument about where this region actually is. In fact, I've been to Israel three times and I've been told three possible locations. So there's not like a direct correlation to where this is. I lean a certain direction because of the text, because it talks about the Decapolis, and it talks about a region that would fit this description on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, which the Decapolis was in that region, 10 cities that were Greek-occupied in that area. But we aren't completely sure. 
There are some factors in the story, though, I think, that point to the right location. However, we do know this. No matter where it was, they arrived at their destination safe and sound. And then, if you think about the text from chapter 4, it's in the evening time when they depart and they go out on the sea. And we always picture that storm on the sea in the nighttime setting. Now, that's, that's accurate, and it's even painted that way when you look at artist depictions of it. But did you ever think about this, that the lake isn't that large of a lake, and most likely they got there still nighttime, and that when they make landfall, this guy comes out of the tombs at them in the dark. I don't know about you guys, but I'm not super fond of crazy people running at me in the dark. This is a very scary situation. This isn't just some guy walking up, can you, can you tell me how I can get to? No, that's not that at all. This is a crazy man who is known for being uncontrollable. He is uncontrollable. He is powerful and strong in a way that most of us have never seen. Here comes this man from the shadows, unrestrainable, superhuman ability due to the presence of not just one demon, but he says himself, many There's a whole gathering inside of him. He's carved up from cutting his own body. He's known for screaming amongst the tombs day and night. This is a frightening scene. You ever been somewhere dark, late at night, and you just got that sense, this is not a safe situation? I remember I went to um, New York right after 9-11. I was part of a team that was doing some support work there that was helping out with some organizations, getting people taken care of. Um, and we were there in February uh, following 9-11, so it only been a few months. Um, the pile was actually still, there was still smoke coming up um, from the two towers at the site. And I had a lot going on that week, and I was staying with this older guy who went to bed really early because he was tired. And I was this young buck, you know, like, I'm in New York City, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to do the smart thing. I'm going to go out at 1 a.m. I'm going to get on the metro and I'm going to go to Harlem alone. Yeah, I wasn't real bright. So you get this sense when you're out walking in the middle of the night at 1, 2 a.m., and you're walking around in Harlem that you are somewhere you should not be and that you're really taking your life in your own hands. And I can feel the Lord saying, what are you doing? Right? You just know that feeling of like, I am somewhere where I shouldn't be right now. Now let's all imagine for a second just how terrifying it would have been to see this man emerge from the darkness and advance towards you. Any mention here in the text as to whether the disciples were experiencing some phobos in this moment? I don't see any. Do you see it? Now I'm not saying they didn't, but it's not in the text. And in fact, it's not in any of the other accounts in the Gospels either. There's no record that they were terrified at this moment. That's interesting to me, and I think I know why. Church, hear me. It's because there's greater power with them than what's in the raging man. And it's this, the one who just calmed the raging sea can calm the raging man. If you remember anything from this morning, please remember that. The same one who can calm the raging sea can calm the raging person. The same person who can deal with the sin of this world is watching over you. The scripture tells us not to be foolish, 
But if God calls us to go somewhere, if God is with us in where we're going, I want to remind you and encourage you that you have nothing to fear in that situation. Jesus has power over all creation, and that includes us. He can calm the raging sea and the raging man. Look at the uncontrollable man. Look at where he is. Where does he go? This demon-possessed man goes directly to the feet of Jesus. It's this amazing picture that we saw on earth of something that we know to be true, that every knee will bow. Even the knee of the man who is filled with the many demonic spirits. They cannot stand before Jesus. I don't know about you guys, but a lot of people I've known over the years are very afraid of demonic activity. Very afraid of spiritual, the spiritual reality of our world. And the spiritual reality of our world is this. Demons are around. Demonic activity is real. And I want to tell you, Christian, you have nothing to fear. If you are in Christ, if the Holy Spirit is within you, you have nothing to fear. In fact, in the gospel accounts, Jesus not only commissioned his disciples in Mark chapter 3 to be able to preach, not only to spend time with him, not only to preach, but to have authority over demons. And Jesus is the one who can give that power and that authority because it's his to possess. It's his intrinsically. He falls at the feet of Jesus. When he sees him from a distance, he runs and he kneels before him. The demons reveal that there isn't just one, there are many. When he says, call me legion, a Roman legion with 6,000 soldiers. Now, I don't know that that's a direct correlation. One biblical translation said, call us mob. <laughs> Not Bob, mob, M-O-B. But it's interesting because like, that's really the idea here. I don't know that it's 6,000 directly, but I'll say this, it's a lot. And this man had some pretty crazy strength and these demons were doing some pretty powerful work through him to destroy him and to bring fear to people around him. Pretty fitting. When you think of the idea of legion or mob or just many, what state this man was in when he walked up to Jesus. Don't picture someone with just wild eyes. Picture someone scarred and bleeding and tattered and torn a human being that's been wrecked. He's begging, and they beg to be allowed, the demons do, to enter into this herd of nearby pigs, and Jesus permits them, and they stampede down the steep bank. And that was when they were destroyed in the lake. 2,000 of them. 2,000 pigs. You ever seen 2,000 pigs? I haven't. I've seen a few. That was enough. But you guys, imagine 2,000 pigs rushing down this hillside into the lake and drowning themselves. It's interesting that some will struggle with the death of these pigs in Scripture without an explanation given by the gospel as to Jesus. None of them do. None of the authors of the gospels give an explanation why Jesus permitted them to go into the pigs. There's been some ideas around it. I've been taught several different things, even in Bible college, about why this happened. Didn't really buy it. I think it's one of those situations we don't have a clear explanation for, and that shouldn't be a problem for us, and here's why. The point is not the pigs. Who, besides Jesus, is this story about? It's about this broken man. It's about this man that's a wreck. 
terrorized by these spirits. And it's crazy to me, you guys, that this man has been freed and so many will fuss about the pigs. And it's not that the pigs don't matter. It's that we don't recognize what matters most often. We don't recognize what matters most. And it's funny how some people want to argue through this text and get frustrated with it when it's like, if Jesus did this, what's your problem with it? Why are you trying to figure out why Jesus did something? It was his choice. What about us wants to argue with God and tell him that he can or cannot do something ethically? What part of that? Inside of us, what do we call that? I would call it pride. I call it pride when I have to understand every little thing that God does. When I have to make sense of every little decision he makes. That's not faith, that's pride. Now the Lord shows us often why he's doing what he's doing, but when he doesn't, why do we argue with him? Because we're prideful. And what are we, or who are we most comparable to when we start thinking that we could do things better than God? I heard it in like different levels, Lucifer, Satan, the devil, all correct. You're all right. That's who we're thinking like. Well, clearly God doesn't know what he's doing, so I should be the one running the show. Isn't that what Peter got in trouble for after his great confession in Caesarea Philippi when he says, you are the Christ, the son of God, and Jesus said, my father revealed that to you. And not two seconds later, Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. And Peter's like, yeah, no. See, here's the problem, God, is you're wrong. Um, You're not going to, and you need to stop talking like that. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me. Was Peter really Satan possessed at that moment? No, that was Judas's job later. But here's the point. Ouch, right? Too soon? It's been 2,000 years. No, here's the thing. Peter in that moment was representing the heart of the enemy, a rebuke and an address against Jesus as being Lord. He was challenging Jesus's authority. So Jesus told him what it was. I can't imagine what that, I still to this day, can't imagine what that would feel like. For Jesus to you, get behind me, Satan. They probably carried Peter to Jerusalem the rest of the way. Okay, so this is, uh, I love this quote from William Barclay on this subject, and then, then I'll leave the pig thing alone and we'll move on. <laughs> so many people like, it's just unethical, I can't understand the pig thing, yet you eat ham and bacon. This is what Barclay says. I love it. I'm not trying to, demi- I'm not trying to make, make light of it, maybe a little. Here's what Barclay says. There is a cheap sentimentalism which will languish in grief over the pain of an animal and never turn a hair at the wretched state of millions of God's men and women. This is not to say that we need not care what happens to God's animal creation, for God loves every creature whom his hands have made. But it is to say that we must preserve a sense of proportion. And in God's scale of proportions, please hear this, there is nothing so important as a human soul. Let that guide our decisions. There is nothing so important as the people that God has put us here to minister to. That applies in many areas of our lives. It applies in this situation. Moving on, here's the reason why the pig thing was a big deal, was how it affected the people. 
who were tending to them. Look at verse 14. The man who tended them, the men who tended them, ran off and reported it in the town and the countryside. And people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting there dressed and in his right mind. That's interesting, by the way, when it's abnormal that you're sitting there dressed. And in his right mind. And notice their response to this. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs. Then they began to beg him to leave their region. Please get out of here. Please leave. Remember when I mentioned that Fabio, that word terrified, would be used again in our text this morning. There it is, afraid. The same Greek word that was used to describe Jesus' disciples as being terrified is used again here for the fear of these citizens of this area, whether from the cities or the countryside around it. They're afraid at what Jesus has done. Why? The, The disciples in their fear, watching Jesus calm the raging sea and trusted themselves to him and watched him bind the many demons and free this raging man. It was reverential fear coupled with loving obedience And I'll say this, reverential fear coupled with that obedience will build our faith. When we fear God and when we love him, like the commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the thing. If we do that, our faith will grow. Because that's not easy. That requires empowering of the Holy Spirit. But how many are like those who come out from the towns and the countryside and seeing the raging man calm and hearing what happened to the herd of pigs, they want nothing to do with Jesus. They can see him work so powerfully and say, yeah, not interested. Do you ever wonder, Christian, do you ever wonder how people reject Jesus? Do you ever share the good news of the gospel? And to you, it's like the most beautiful words you've ever heard. And they're like, yuck. Don't want anything to do with it. Does it ever baffle you as a believer? It does me. It baffles me often how people go through their lives without trusting in Christ. I fall apart. I don't understand it. Here's why they reject him in this situation. And I think that we understand this because we see some of it in our culture, if not a lot of it. This is why they want nothing to do with him because Jesus is disruptive. He is disruptive. Never forget that. It's going to save you a lot of trouble in your walk with the Lord. He is disruptive. Here's what I mean by that. He is disruptive to our comfort. He is disruptive to our complacency. He is disruptive to our rhythm sometimes. I say this as a pastor who loves a good rhythm. You know, I like a good plan. I like a good schedule. I even like a good rhythm on the guitar, right? And sometimes Jesus comes in and introduces a little jazz into my life. You're like, there's rhythm there. I can't find it. (laughs) You know, (laughs) a picture just popped in my head. I'm not. No, absolutely not. No, Mike. You guys, (laughs) I'm just having a conversation. Let me work this out, okay? Jesus is disruptive 
to our complacency. He is disruptive to our comfort. And you guys are taking that sitting down. Good job. I'm really actually wondering if you get it or not. That freaks us out. Why? Because you love your routine. You love depending on things that you know are going to be there. It's why we have savings accounts. It's why we have homes with couches that don't change position for years. It's why we have all the things in the refrigerator in the same space. Why? Because I like to know where things are and how it's going to work and what God's going to do. And God says, get ready. Here it comes. Right? And I'm over there. I did it anyway. That was the thing I didn't want to do. Okay. Sorry. Church, we have to be aware of this. Please hear me. (laughs) I'm editing that right out. You're not going to find it online. I'm taking it all out. Church, we have to be aware of this. Ask yourself the question. I'll ask it of myself as well. Do we have a do not disturb sign on our hearts? Do we have a do not disturb sign on our homes and on our churches? Are we refusing the disruption of Christ that would lead to greater faith? That's my question for us. Are we not wanting the Lord to shake us out of our lethargy? Do we get this way? So often people look at Jesus and they say, I don't want it. Why? Because I don't know what he's going to do with my pigs. (laughs) I'm serious. We're laughing, but I'm I'm being very, very serious about this. What is it that you don't want him to have full reign over? What is it that you don't want him to have access to? I talked about it a while back, and I shouldn't have done it, but I'm going to do it again. Like, I was talking about that meatloaf song. You know, I would do anything for love. What's the next line? But I won't do that. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, Amy. (laughs) Sorry, not sorry. You guys... How often you're like, Lord, you have my life, my love, my soul, everything. He's like, I'll take that. And you're like, oh, that's not on the menu. How did that get out here? I'll just put this back in my closet where you can't see it. Because we have these little closets in our lives that we think we can keep or withhold things from God. And we don't actually have to come to this place of 100% absolute surrender. And that's exactly what Jesus asks of us. What are you willing to surrender. And when we come to Jesus and he, despite our scars, despite the state we're in, he frees us. We're going to see in a moment what a person who recognizes what that has done for him is willing to do. As opposed to people that say, don't touch my safety. Don't disturb what I have. I've got a nice little life here. As long as you fit well into that, I'll be a Christian. But so many of us are looking for Jesus to be the supplement, not the source of our lives. We want Jesus to be this cool little supplement that I can fit into my Sunday morning or I can fit into even my home group, but I'm not going to let him be the source of everything that I do every single day for every single moment. And Jesus says, I require absolute surrender. Maybe the things that you're struggling with right now, the most of the things that you are not surrendering, maybe that's what's affecting me the most.
is that I have not absolutely surrendered to him. I'm not coming to him saying, please get this out of me. I'll do whatever. But I long to be free. Maybe I'm so upset about what it's going to cost me that I don't want it. Is our fear of God the kind that builds our faith or is it fear that makes us want him to leave us alone? Is it a fear of God that strengthens our faith or do we look at what he's able to do and that fabeo, that fear, that afraid response makes us want him to get out? Please leave our region. Don't stay here. These people, they had a routine of life and it had been unsettled. Their response was to remove that unsettling, disturbing element as quickly as possible. If you don't like being unsettled, I have very bad news for you, Christian. Jesus is going to unsettle you. He's going to stir you up. He's going to disrupt things in our lives that cause complacency. Now, don't get me wrong. Rhythm is good. Routine is good. Plan. Make a plan. But you know what? James says it really well. He says, you know what? You really shouldn't say that I'm going to go tomorrow and thus, thus a place and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and the other. He says, you know what you should say is if the Lord wills. Maybe we need to do that more often and actually mean it. Let's say, Lord willing, yeah, but in your heart you're like, I'm doing this. Do you actually mean Lord willing? Like he could change the direction and I will follow him no matter where that goes. Because even if it's out onto that sea in a raging storm, he's going to take care of it. Even if this crazed maniac comes out of the tombs, he's going to take care of it. I just need Jesus with me. I need Jesus with me, and I need him to lead. I need him to be deciding where we go. I want Jesus to be Lord of my life, not supplement. You guys, let us all remember this. It is human not to want to have our comfort disturbed, but it's divine to be willing to be disturbed that others may have more. It's divine to be willing to be disturbed that others may have more. That's the heart of Christ. Again, from Barclay on this text, he says, there are people who do not want to know anything new for they know that if they did, they might have to go through the mental sweat of rethinking things and coming to new conclusions. There's a cowardice of thought and a lethargy of mind and a sleep of the soul, which are terrible things. The garrisons banish the disturbing Christ and still there are people who seek to do the same. The reason I share quotes from a lot of my studies with you guys from some great writers is because if it convicts me, it may as well convict you. Guys, may we never be the people that are seeking for the Lord to go somewhere else. May we long for him to be with us and may we long to be with him like the man who was delivered. Let's look at the end of our text. Verse 18, we'll wrap it up with this. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. Notice that begged him earnestly. This man is begging Jesus, please let me stay with you. Let me go with you. I want to be with you. Jesus didn't let him go. Jesus said, no. Go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And they were all amazed. It was time for this man to testify to his own people in his own region. Jesus had absolutely made him new. And then Jesus commissions him with a task. And it wasn't what the guy wanted. 
It wasn't what he was begging to do. You ever beg the Lord for something? For a long time. Earnestly, with all your heart. Not an issue of sincerity whatsoever. And Jesus said, no. What I have for you is to go back home and to be a light there. I want you to testify to your hometown about what the Lord has done for you. He was to be a witness of the power of God, just like Lazarus. I talked about Lazarus last week and the week before. He was to be this living testimony that was revealed in the healing of his heart, his mind, and his body. And I I just like, I thought of this as I was reading the text. It was like, do you really think all those scars disappeared? From him carving his flesh open with rocks? Or did he go to people and show them those scars and say, do you want to know what happened? Do you want to know the story behind these? He was a new creation regardless of the scars, regardless of what had happened to him because of these horrifying spirits. He was able to testify because of it. And the unanswerable proof of Christianity is a recreated human being. I'll say that again. I know it's on the screen. The unanswerable proof of Christianity is a recreated human being. Jill, you can come on up. There in the Greek civilization, we know this guy's region is the Decapolis, 10 Greek cities. There were some Jews, but they were predominantly Greek. There in these Greek cities is where this man was sent to do this ministry. And he spreads the word of Jesus all throughout the Decapolis. And Paul may have been the missionary of the Gentiles, but the outreach to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, to those who were secularized, began with this man. What's his name? What's his name? You're not missing out on a Bible quiz. We don't know. You're like, I don't know. That's the right answer. That's the right answer. We don't know his name. We just know that Jesus delivered him from these demons and he went and preached the gospel to this Greek region. And people glorified God. Maybe the world will never know our name. Maybe people here will forget it years after we pass. My family will remember me. Sure. But like people here, maybe they won't. How much of an impact did this man have on the world around him because of what Christ did in him? And are we missing something because we're so bent on doing what we want to do, even if you think that it's a good thing? Jesus, I just want to be with you here in this place. And he says, no, I have you going over there. No one will ever know your name. No one will ever talk about your exploits. In fact, all they're going to do is glorify the Father because of what I've done in you. There's a part of every single one of us Christian on the inside that's singing right now because that's what we were created to do. Anything that's resisting it is flesh. Anything that's resisting it is sin that says, I know what's best, I deserve this, I should be here. That's sin. The part of you on the inside that says, I could not have my name known and bring glory to God in whatever way he calls me to. That part of your heart that kind of stirs up at that, that's the spirit. That's the Lord's work in you. 
Church, Jesus is doing something new in the Decapolis on this day. He's sending them a missionary. He's sending a missionary to the Decapolis. In our region, is the Holy Spirit seeking to do something new? And will he find a church that doesn't have the do not disturb switch on? But has the heart of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, when God says, who will go for us? Who's going to do this task? And Isaiah in verse 8 says, here I am. Send me. I'll do it. Isaiah lived a very lonely, brutal life. And he didn't turn back. He didn't relent from the work God gave him to do because he saw the purpose in following what the Lord had placed him on this earth to do. He let God disrupt him. Let's let the Holy Spirit disrupt us. Let's let the Lord give us this understanding and this this clarity in our lives as to what we are holding back from saying, you can have all this, but you can't have this. I won't do that. Let's turn that around and say absolute surrender. You can have whatever you want. Take it all. Paul says this. I'll read this passage and then we'll we'll worship together and let the Lord um, minister to our hearts as we sing. But in Romans 12, Paul towards the end of the letter in chapter 12 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age. That's turning on the do not disturb button. It says don't do that. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. The good, pleasing, and perfect will of God is that we would lay our lives down just like Jesus, just like our Savior did. And then watch him go to work in the world around us. Let's pray together. Lord, we just ask for the ability to do what your word says. As Isaiah wrote in chapter 66, this is the one whom the Lord favors, those who are humble, those who are submissive in spirit, and those who tremble at my word. Lord, may you find here amidst your church a people, a body that is humble, that is submissive to you, and that obeys what you say. May we be humble, submissive, and obedient people, not longing to hold on to whatever it is that we value most in this life, but to count everything as loss, as Paul said, so that we might gain you, Jesus. That doesn't mean we get all the things in this life that we want. In fact, maybe it means that we have to give up some things. Might have to let you remove those things from us. Whatever it is, Lord, I pray that we would be a people who are welcoming your disruption. Who are welcoming whatever it is that you want to do in our lives, Lord. I pray that missionaries would be born here this morning. Through this message, in some way when it's heard, Lord, that a missionary would hear the call and they would listen to what your spirit is doing inside of their hearts. And Lord, in that breath, we pray for our missionaries in Thailand and Africa. We pray for the Lessica family as they head for Papua New Guinea at the end of this year. 
We lift these people up to you who are forsaking in very practical ways. Lord, some things that were possessions in this life. Lord, I pray that we would do that here in our community, that we would see you can call us to do that here as it was for the man in his home region in the Decapolis, or Lord, maybe you're going to send us out. But whatever it is that we would be willing to go, we would be willing to do whatever you've asked for us to do. And this time as we worship, Lord, would you speak to our hearts as we seek out that place where you have our full attention. You have our ears, you have our minds, you have every part of us. Jesus, I ask that you would speak to your people this morning. We are all yours. You're the good shepherd. And so, Lord, would you speak to us and minister as we sing your praises and as we worship you for a time.